Before we get started, this is particularly addressed to those of you who listen online, particularly if you are listening at a later date, a few months or even years from now, if the authorities still let us listen to these types of things. Uh, if you're wondering what's going on behind me, our church, that or the church that New Harvest is, is hosted at, Lakeview Baptist, we're set up for our vacation Bible school, and so it appears they've turned our sanctuary into, uh, I don't know, something to please the kids, I guess, and, and into an arcade, as, as, as Wesley says. And, well, with that being said, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, if uh, you are able, I want to invite you to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? O Father God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father I just pray that we would come before you in a spirit of awe and, and, and reverence. Lord, I, I pray that by your grace, by the working of your spirit, you would remove from our thoughts, from our hearts and our minds, um, uh, thoughts about uh, worldly things, secular things, though they may not be in and of themselves sinful. Uh, I just pray that these thoughts about the work week to come or or et cetera, et cetera, would not detract our attention from uh, focusing on your word, focusing on your truth. Father, I just pray that your word, your truth would be honored, would be revered, would be made known to your people this night. And I pray that you would be glorified in all that we do. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Coming, of course, uh, beginning a sermon series uh, through uh, that most famous and well-revered sermon preached by our Lord Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We come to the first of the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus Christ says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, two weeks ago, uh, we have had an overview, we had an introduction to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, just to sort of uh, set, set the course for things, uh, set our minds, uh, sort of do some overview work, and uh, obviously we begin our study with the Beatitudes. Uh, one of the things that we stressed in our last session was that the Sermon on the Mount ought to be treated as a unified whole. It is a self-contained discourse given by the Lord Jesus Christ, and so, therefore, each part of the Sermon on the Mount must be interpreted in light of where it fits within the sermon. Not only is the text of these words inspired, but the order in which they come was intentional on God's part as well. That being said, as we come to the Beatitudes, we must reckon with the fact that These are the words that Jesus decided to open up his sermon with. And so I would say that the fact that the Beatitudes are the very first thing we encounter is quite significant. What you are going to see is that the rest of the sermon flows from the Beatitudes. You will remember in our first session I said that the Sermon on the Mount is particularly addressed to believers. Now, there have been many over the centuries who have uh, tried to take the Sermon on the Mount, some of the moral content we find in there, and 
and essentially use it as some sort of uh, moral code for a kind of new world utopia. Uh, you know, if we, if we could just get people to live like this, then, then everything would be all right. Society would be better. Everything would run uh, more smoothly. There would be peace on earth and all these types of things. Well, the problem with this rather pragmatic approach is immediately exposed when we come to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes make it very obvious and indisputable that this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is addressed to regenerate Christian believers, people who, whom, whose hearts have been changed by God. Therefore, to take the Sermon on the Mount and try to force it upon an unbelieving, naturally-minded people would be an effort in futility. In order for the Sermon on the Mount to even make sense to you, let alone for you to try and live it out, you need grace working in your life. Something that I perhaps should have mentioned in our last session uh, during the introduction, which I will briefly address now because it's it's relevant to what we're going to be looking at, is because it will influence how we interpret these verses, and that is what some people do with uh, Luke's gospel when we find the Sermon on the Plain. Now, there would be um, wonderful, godly men whom I would look up to who would say that the Sermon on the Mount is just another, or rather the Sermon on the Plain is another recording of the Sermon on the Mount, that it's, it's the same sermon uh, just with different emphases. I, uh, I, I disagree with that. I, it's my conviction that what we find in Matthew and what we find in Luke are, are two separate, uh, distinct, yet related sermons. Jesus is going to touch on some of the same themes in both, but I think it's, it's quite clear that these are two separate, two distinct messages, and that is especially relevant when we look at uh, Luke's rendering of the Beatitudes. I think that's quite clear from the context that Luke's Beatitudes, while obviously he there's similar language being used, Uh, a different point, a different idea is being taught there, is being communicated than in Matthew's. So one of the things that we recognize when we come to the Beatitudes is just as every portion of the larger sermon needs to be interpreted in its context, uh, so too does each Beatitude, each individual statement need to be interpreted in light of where it fits in the other Beatitudes. I'm going to assert to you, and I think it will be fairly demonstrated as we go through these verses, that the Beatitudes have an order to them. The Beatitudes have a flow to them. There is a progression in what's being communicated. Jesus is not just sitting there on the mountain just saying random stuff. There is a purpose to it all. There is a golden chain of thought being communicated. There is a reason that verse 3 comes before verse 4. There's a reason why verse 10 is the last beatitude instead of verse 6. And that's very, very important. The way that often we think of the beatitudes is that they're just these, you know, neat, you're just these pithy little individual statements, but to treat them like that is, is completely inadequate. These are not just little bumper sticker slogans. These are not just trite sayings. What Jesus does in these Beatitudes is he poetically and expertly delivers to his people what we find is a towering mountain of theology. For you see, contained in the Beatitudes is the very gospel itself. Therefore, contained within the Beatitudes is the very central the core essence of the Christian message. We read that ever-familiar saying of Christ, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as you are aware, every beatitude is going to have this same structure. Blessed are such and such group, for they have this particular blessing. Well, first, I suppose it would be helpful if we thought about what that word blessed meant. I, uh, there, someone said on the internet a little while ago, uh, it's, it's sort of an unwritten rule that when you read the Beatitudes, you don't read them as blessed, 
but you must always read them like you're living in 17th century England and say, blessed, uh, we are going to obey that rule. Uh, now, now, you'll have it often suggested that, that the word blessed just means happy. Some of your more uh, paraphrase-type translations are going to, in certain forms, you will see that they will render that word blessed as, as happy. And so, instead of saying blessed are the poor in spirit, it would say happy are the poor in spirit. Uh, to be quite honest with you, that is, that's a rather weak rendering, and I, I don't just mean that because it's not as elegant of a word. I mean, the word happy just doesn't communicate the very specific thought that the Lord Jesus is communicating. Another thing that you may have heard is that the word blessed just means one who has received fortune, like, like, like a good thing has happened to this person, that they've been given a gift doesn't really quite satisfy either. If we look at some Old Testament background, you will realize that Jesus is, is, is using a style of, of speech that is very frequent in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. Uh, for example, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. By the way, very important verse. Uh, Paul uses that verse as one of his main arguments in Romans chapter 4 when talking about justification by faith. Uh, and... I think that that understanding that the blessed man is one whom the Lord is not going to impute sin to, but th this person has been brought into a right relationship with God, that understanding is going to be key for us. To look at some other texts, Psalm 119, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 144, blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is Yahweh, whose God is the Lord. Jeremiah 17 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. You see, when we, usually when we find this type of speech being used in the Old Testament, which Jesus says he was the fulfillment of, when a man is blessed, it always has to do with his relationship to God. Essentially, to be blessed is to have well-being in your relationship with God. You're, you're blessed when you trust in the Lord. You are blessed when you're meditating on His law, when you're walking in His ways. Chief important thing there, as I already mentioned, you're blessed when the Lord will not impute your sin to you. Therefore, blessed does not, not simply just mean happy. Uh, that, that's, that's just an absurd way to, way to think of this. There are all kinds of people who are happy who... Never give a thought to the law of God or, or to, to walking in His ways. There, there's, there's all kinds of sin that will make you happy. Psalm 1 says that you're blessed when you're not walking with the wicked and standing in the way of sinners. So to be blessed, more than just being happy, okay, be, to be blessed is to have a right and, and true relationship with God. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute his sin. That word impute, by the way, I realize it's not part of our everyday vernacular, means when the Lord will not count your sin against you. Think court of law. Your debt has been paid by someone else. For we read in, in the New Testament that our sin, and we read in the Old Testament all, that our sin has been imputed to Jesus Christ. Okay, we see the love of God in that him who knew no sin was made to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin is imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And so that is sort of like, a, like the key theme there when we're looking at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are essentially a roadmap or a pathway to and through blessedness. So the very first step then, 
here on our way to and through blessedness is found in verse 3. It's the very first thing Jesus says, and it is when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Once again, we need to define our terms. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What you will have many commentators do is they will run to Luke's gospel where Jesus simply says, blessed are the poor, and then he'll eventually say, woe to you who are rich. And, and they will make this entire thing about, about money, about finances. Blessed are you when you don't have a lot of money. But as we said, that's Luke's, Luke's gospel. It's a, it's a different context. It's a different sermon. That's not what's in view here. Jesus specifically says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, specifically. Well, what is meant here by a man's spirit? Well, a man's spirit, that's his soul. That, that's his, it's who he is. That's his inward, internal, emotional disposition. A man's spirit is that spiritual reality of, of who he is. You've, you've, you know, when someone's spirits are up, you're saying that this person's in a good mood. When someone's spirits are down, you know that they are sad or, or gloomy. Jesus specifically says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means we already know what blessed means. So those who are poor in spirit are in the state of having this right relationship with God. Now, what people will do, and again, I would disagree with this, is they will then say that Jesus is referring to those who are downtrodden in this life. That the man who is poor in spirit, just the guy that's got the blues or just having a a rough time at it. Well, where this interpretation fails is that verse 3 ends with Jesus saying that the reason they are blessed, the explanation thereof is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, obviously, there's a sense in Scripture in which those who weep now are going to have their tears wiped away by the Savior in eternity, and those who laugh now, their laughter will be turned to mourning. But that's not what's being said at this particular point. Matter of fact, that's more similar to what we see in Luke's gospel. As I have said that these beatitudes we find here in Matthew 5, they are a progression. They are a chain. Okay, each one leads into the next. And what you will notice is that verse 6, being poor in spirit, is eventually going to lead to a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. There are all kinds of gloomy people out there. All kinds of people down on their luck, ain't got a buck, that type of thing, who never, ever find themselves hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus means here, then, by a man who is, or, or a woman who is poor in spirit, then is this, a man who's feeling lowly and, and unworthy in his soul, specifically in relation to God. If you take notes, I would write that last part down. It's very crucial. In relationship to God. As Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, we are not looking at men confronting one another, but we are looking at man face to face with God. There, there is a certain effect that grace will have on a man when it first comes to him. And the very first evidence of grace, notice this is the first beatitude our Lord lists, is when someone gets a sense of their own sinfulness, their own unworthiness. John Calvin has said, He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. My favorite illustration of this is found in Isaiah chapter 6. I, Isaiah, and if you're in my Sunday school, we went through this uh, last week, but Isaiah, by God's grace, has granted this most spectacular, this most wonderful vision of the Lord in, in all His glory and majesty. But specifically what Isaiah sees is His holiness. For the angels do not cry out, love, love, love. They do not cry out, mercy, mercy, mercy. They do not cry out those attributes which most of us are wanting to emphasize. They don't cry out thrice the attributes that we often try to use to make the Christian message appealing. 
They don't cry out love, love, love. They don't cry out mercy, 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 forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. They cry out holy, holy, holy. And holy God is for even the seraphim, which flew above him, had to cover their faces. For even to them, even the very angelic host, created of God, to see a glimpse of his holiness was too much to bear. Isaiah, before that, was considered on all accounts a righteous and virtuous man. Uh, you know men in your life of, of whom you think, you know, such and such a person, good guy. There's really a good, that's a good man. Uh, you know, maybe you would say, you know, this person I know, that, that, that's a righteous man. That's the type of guy that Isaiah was. Maybe you're a person who you think that's yourself to be righteous. Well, I have to tell you something. This, this good guy, this noble man, righteous on all accounts, virtuous on all accounts, Isaiah, catches one glimpse of the majestic holiness of God. He cries out in utter despair and poverty spirit. He says, woe is me. For for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, a man who is poor in spirit is one who recognizes his own sinfulness, his own weakness, his own depravity. Matthew Henry has said, This poverty of spirit is a gracious disposition of soul by which we are emptied of self in order to have our being filled with Jesus Christ. You see, upon recognizing his own sinfulness, his own utter weakness, his own total depravity, the man who is poor in spirit, having, a, having gotten a sense of, of who he is, specifically who he is in relation with God, realizes he's totally, utterly dependent upon the goodness, upon the graciousness of God. Many people would say that the Beatitudes are something of a, a Christian manifesto which lists the values of the kingdom of God. And, and, and I think there's a lot of uh, truth to that. And, and you often hear people say, I mean, just, just look at how different the values of the kingdom are than to the values of this world. I mean, one of the things that the world we live in emphasizes and places value on money, fame, power, fortune, intellect, the, the, these different things, physical attractiveness. What is the very first thing that Jesus lists when he's describing the blessed man? He says, blessed is the poor in spirit. He says, blessed is the one who looks at his self, looks at God and recognizes his own sin. You see, that's, 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 that's not even a category for the natural world. That, that, that's not even something that makes sense to the natural world. Poverty of spirit, looking at yourself, saying with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, seeing yourself as nothing more than a lowly sinner. As I said, not even a category for the natural world. Why? Because it only comes by grace. That is a thought that will only truly come to you by grace, by the working of the Holy Spirit of God. You might say, but Logan, there are all sorts of unbelievers who feel guilty, who, who feel shame about their sin. And, and, and yes, there are. Why? Romans chapter 2 says that the work of the law is written on all men's hearts. Not in the, the new covenant sense in which all men are given this desire to, to fulfill that law, but the, the basic rights and wrongs of morality, the, the Ten Commandments, are written on everyone's conscience in a sense that, that they know. Everyone, uh, although they would, will suppress this knowledge, everyone has a sense inside of him in which he knows that murder is wrong. Knows that lying is wrong. He knows adultery is wrong, these different things. Why? It's written on their conscience. And so, because people know that these things are wrong, 
virtually all people at, at one point, having committed some sin, are going to feel guilty about it, going to feel shame about it. But that alone, that alone is not the true essence of being poor in spirit. For as we've emphasized, to be poor in spirit specifically has to do with how you look at yourself in relation to God. That, that last part is it's very important. We're not talking about how other people look at you. We're not talking about the relationships that you've harmed or, or burned. And we're not, not, we're not even talking about just looking at yourself alone and saying, I am just a disgrace. Because it's about looking at yourself specifically in relation to the one who wrote those Ten Commandments on your heart. To the one who is the very being who sustains the breath that's in your lungs. It's about looking at yourself in relation to your Creator. Now, because as we've said, work of the law is written on their hearts, there are many sinners out there today who committed adulteries, fornications, lied, cheated, stolen, and a myriad of things. Their conscience testifies to them of that wrong, but you see, they never find relief. They may go to drown their thoughts and sorrows in a glass, run to marijuana, put all their tears and fears up in smoke, run to the needle or some other illicit, illicit substance, and try with all their strength to, to just shut up those demons that are inside, those voices which are scratching away at their souls, leading them from the inside out, keeping them from sleeping at night. But you see, they, they never find the relief that they need. I've heard of young women so distraught, so shameful over their sexual sin who search to find relief in, in, in further sexual pleasure, just to quiet up that little nagging voice that's inside their minds, and lo and behold, now they feel guilty of the thing that they've just done, and now they need to rush out and try to just stuff that one away. And we see that the sad little darlings of our fallen world find themselves in a continuous cycle of depravity, which leads them to only despair and destruction. I will fully grant you, there are many sinners who never come to that point at all, uh, who seem as though they just got, this guy's just got no shame whatsoever, he has no guilt, so he didn't even have a conscience. That's, sadly, I think that's the type of person you have to be to serve in politics, but God allows these people to have full bowls of, of laughter and pleasure all the days of their lives, they cheat on their spouse, they think nothing of it. They steal from their employer, their employees, and give it not a second thought. Some of these wretched people will lie to their own mothers, and, and the words just roll right off their tongues. Nevertheless, we do see, we do see many, many people, many broken people, many sinners who feel an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame over the things that they've done even though these people are not poor in spirit. They may recognize they've, they've ruined their relationships. They've, they've ruined their place in this world. I know one guy who literally believed at one point in his life that there had been a curse cast on him because he kept bringing destruction into his own life. These people cannot be said to be the poor in spirit because the poor in spirit are those who reach that most crucial point who reached that most vital point, and hopefully you know by now because we've emphasized it. But poor sinners, listen to my voice carefully. If you know that you're a sinner, you do well. But just to know that you're a sinner, just to feel that guilt, just to feel shame, it's not, it's not what we're going for. That's not enough. Recognize that you are not just sinful in the estimation of the people around you, nor in your own estimation of yourself. But you're sinful in the sight of holy God. The Puritans were fond of saying, we must dig low, but we can build high. 
And you see, this truth can only be communicated by, to an individual by grace. A knowledge of this only comes by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's given you that knowledge that if Holy God were to judge you based upon your own works, your own righteousness, the very best that was in you, Isaiah says all our good works are as a polluted garment, as, as, as filthy rags, that if God were to judge the very best that was in you, it would be damnation. He would have to cast you into an eternal lake of fire and he would be justified in every motion of judgment and wrath that he poured out upon your soul. You've got to recognize this. You've got to realize this. You've got to tremble. You've got to rejoice. Say, Logan, why, how, do, how do I rejoice? There, there's nothing good about what you've just described. That sounds terrible. That, that sounds awful. That sounds horrible to have just this weight of conviction and to, and to look in the mirror and say, I am wretched and I am nothing and God deserves to smite me. It's not an enjoyable feeling. The, the, the weight of, of conviction when the Holy Spirit makes known to a sinner the depths of their own wickedness is an unbearable burden. But I know a man who once said, Come unto me, all ye who are weary or heavy laden, stricken, afflicted with many burdens, come to me and I will give you rest. You see, my Lord, my God, and my Savior, Jesus Christ, here in this inspired text of Holy Scripture says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He does not say woe to the poor in spirit or how sad is the condition of the poor in spirit, but he says blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see how this is just completely removed from the thinking of the secular world. That There are so many presuppositions and, and, and foundational aspects of this concept that a person must understand and, and reckon with before they can even understand it. That's why this is something, that I've, I've, as I've been saying, it must be communicated by grace, by the sovereign, effective work of God. You see, if you've come to that point of spiritual poverty, when, when you look at yourself, and you look to God, and all you can think to say are those words of Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I mean, think about our own land. Think about our own land. Think about our neighbors, the ones that we live around, this society that we live in, which wants to take every wretched thing and... And, and, and glory and, and bask in it and, and wants to mock their Creator by taking the created order and, and switching around. God says He made a male and female. It's not good enough. People got to change that. People got to switch that around, distort that. That's, that's this land. I say, he says, woe is me. I, 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 I am unclean. I dwell in the midst of an unclean People, and, and, and as hard and as tough as that state is, Charles Spurgeon uh, in, uh, testifies in his autobiography that before he came to peace with God, he said that he spent months, months in poverty of spirit, months in agony, months in turmoiling over and reckoning with the sin that was in his soul. If, if, if you read the first volume of his autobiography, you, you read this stuff and you're just, just amazed. It's a depth that this man's soul went to before he finally found that peace. And, and what, what was causing all that? Grace was communicating to him his sin. We sing that song, Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. As Puritan said... You know, I, I, I'm in construction. I'm a carpenter. You know, I, I don't worry about putting the 
five-inch crown molding on your cabinets, the foundation's not even poured yet. I mean, I mean that, that would be ludicrous. If, if you want to build high, if, if you want nice trim in your house, you want a nice archway, nice tile floor, that's all good, but if you want to build that high, guess what? The house needs to be sitting on a solid and firm foundation. Okay? Jesus talked about that. He said, don't build your house on the sand. You build it on the rocks. Well, you get that foundation, what do you got to do? You got to dig into the earth. You got to get down. And, and just, it's just like that with the gospel. It's just like that with the Christian life. You got to get down, dig deep into your soul. Thomas Watson, he said it in a, in a different context, albeit, but he said, you know, feathers float on the top of the water. What does gold do? Sinks down into the mire. It sinks down into the deeps. That's what we got to do with our own souls. And so Jesus here, he recognizes the, the, the tough and challenging emotions of that. And him being a gracious and loving Savior seeks to offer comfort. He says, blessed are ye, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now you will notice, as we've said, this is the first beatitude, which means that being poor in spirit is the very first step on your way to and through blessedness. All the other graces, all the other blessings and characteristics that we see here in the Beatitudes start with and flow from being found poor in spirit. I must say this as well. If you are here today, if you're listening online and you call yourself a Christian, but, you've, but this experience is just foreign to you. You've never, never, never found yourself to be poor in spirit. I, I, it's my duty as a minister of Christ to call you to examine yourself. And I don't mean just have you ever felt guilty about something. I, I don't just mean have you ever felt shame about something. There are lots of people who feel those emotions. There are lots of people who spent this weekend with drunkards, harlots, thieves, and junkies and are feeling shameful right now. But these are not those who are blessed. I'm talking about if, if you've never looked inside of your own soul and asked yourself what the triune God of Scripture who created this universe would say to you if he saw what he found in there, which he does see it, if, then I might solemnly suggest that you've never been found to be poor in spirit. That's why it's, by the way, such a contradiction in terms to be a self-righteous Christian. Woe be unto us. Woe be unto us if we ever find ourselves to be proud or boastful or self-righteous due to our Christian profession. Never think, never think at any moment or any time that you are better or more worthy than anyone around you or anyone you know, whether it's someone sitting next to you in the pews or someone who just checked into a drug rehab facility. For were it not for the grace of God, you would be nowhere. You would be doomed. Never ever forget that the road to and through blessedness, the very foundation of the Christian life, begins when we find ourselves poor in spirit. It's an attitude that, in a sense, although we, you know, we need to be balanced, we read in the Scripture that, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That the term that Paul uses comes from the Hebrew shalom, which is a word with, with a deep and, and profound meaning to it. We recognize we have this, this peace with God that the Lord is not going to impute our sins to us. And so I'm not talking about living in a constant, perpetual state of just agony. You want to be balanced. Remember Jesus said, blessed are ye. So he's, he's giving you comfort. He's giving you consolation. Never forget that the, the Apostle Paul, the man arguably most used in the history of the Christian church, called an apostle of Christ, penned about 13 letters in the New Testament, so used of God, never forget that that man referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Never forget that. We read Romans chapter 9 that those who are vessels of mercy, those who are vessels of destruction, made from the same lump. Made from the same lump. What is the distinction? Wasn't anything in the lump. Wasn't anything in the clay. It was the potter. You see, you it all to God if, if you're a Christian. 
You owe it all to him. He will not share his glory with another. There, there's no room for putting your own merit, your own righteousness, your own spirituality aside with him. He won't have it. Jesus will have all the glory or will have none of it. Never, never, never forget those foundational things. Now, before we move on to expounding on what the particular blessing listed here is, having the kingdom of heaven, I think we should first look at uh, some practical steps in reaching this state of being poor in spirit. Obviously, first and foremost, we recognize this comes only from the grace of God. Natural men, people in their sins, have no concept of what it means to be poor in spirit. This must first be supernaturally revealed unto us by God. But Christians are not only said to be poor in spirit at the beginning of their lives, or beginning of their Christian lives, but poverty of spirit, as I've said, to a degree, ought to be a virtue, a gracious fruit of the spirit that is present within us throughout our lives. And it would behoove us to use the means that God has given us to remind ourselves of this vital thing. Firstly, one must make use of the law of God, that is, the Word of God. We read in Psalm 119, Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. Psalm 1 says that the blessed man is one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Although, as obviously I've already said, morality and ethics, the, those, those basic things, the Ten Commandments, are made known to everyone's conscience, there is a special role that the law of God has in bringing people to a knowledge of sin. Note that the law Paul is primarily referring to is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, those who would suggest that the moral laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, although we obviously need to interpret them in their context and how they relate to our day, but those who would say that the moral laws of those books are no longer relevant are refuted by the Apostle Paul at this point. But it would suggest, and I don't think any Christian would disagree, that the law of God is found in both Old and New Testaments. In our introduction, we talked about Luther's view of the Sermon on the Mount, and he said that the Sermon on the Mount brings to a person knowledge of their sin. And I told you how I sort of agreed with him on that point as well. So when we look at God's law, when we look at His commandments, what He requires of us, if grace is in us, we recognize our own inability to fulfill its demands. Realizing our own sinfulness and weakness, we are driven to the feet of the cross of Jesus Christ, crying out for mercy. So what we got to do? We've got to read our Bibles often. We have to meditate on God's Word, hide it up within our hearts. For the Word of God has the power, capacity, and at times the explicit purpose bringing you to poverty of spirit. Secondly, make use of preaching. I realize that I am a preacher preaching a sermon telling you to make use of preaching, which is rather redundant, but it's true. It needs to be said. Uh, preaching is a God-given means of grace that the Lord instructs His church in the New Testament to observe. And God uses His ministers to shepherd His flock. Oh, if, if you were a child of God, how, you, how foolish would you be to neglect this? It is my prayer that these sermons I preach here on Sunday nights would be used of God to cultivate a sense of poverty of spirit. The Puritans believed, and I would echo this right along with them, that the primary means of grace the Lord has given to His church is the pulpit. Is the pulpit is is when the man of God takes the word of God and comes before the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, to deliver the message of God. We've talked about when God wants to judge a nation, He withholds His prophets, and the opposite of that is God blesses His people by sending His prophets, that is His ministers, to minister His written word. Do you not realize that? 
You know, as you sit here right now, and you're listening to the Word of God being preached, if indeed the message is accurate and God's truth is being reflected and the Holy Spirit is working in this place, then what you are partaking of right now, most important thing happening in the city, and I don't even flinch as I say that, most important thing happening in the city. And you say, Logan, most of our church don't even show up on Sunday nights. How can you say that? This is the most important thing happening in, in the city. Well, don't be like those foolish people who can't see past the flesh. Child of God, cling tightly to God's message. Cling tightly to His message. Make every effort you can to make the best use of this means of grace He has given you. Thirdly, we would say make use of the ordinances, those rites ordained by Christ for His church, uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper. For when we look at baptism, we see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we look at the Lord's Supper, we see His blood and His body, which was given for us, and, and, and we are told that this is a, a, a remembrance. And so we look at it and we, you know, touch the bread, touch the wine, uh, smell it, taste it, see it, and all those different things. And, and as it's taking place, you're contemplating the very crucifixion of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in contemplating the cross, we see our own depravity. We see what God requires of it. We see what His own Son went through to redeem a people from their sin. As we think about these things, we come to a poverty spirit. And fourthly, I would say, private prayer. How often does a child of God neglect this virtue? It is my conviction that there is nothing that we do in the Christian life that is more opposed to our flesh and to human nature than when we get down on our knees and prostrate ourselves before holy God. Remember, it was seeing a vision of the glory of God that brought Isaiah to that poverty of spirit. And it will be fellowship with God in prayer that conjures that within us. Now, having thought about what it means to be poor in spirit and observing some practical uses we can make to achieve this, then we have to think about the fact that it's a blessed state to be in. For to you will be the kingdom of heaven. Well, so what does that mean? Uh, what, what does it mean that to you belongs the kingdom of heaven? Well, what even is the kingdom of heaven is a question we need to ask. The kingdom of heaven, referred to also as the kingdom of God, is that heavenly, that holy kingdom which God the Father promised to give to His Son Jesus. This is a promise we find back in the Old Testament uh, for instance, Daniel chapter 7, this kingdom is said to be inaugurated in Jesus' life. He said in Luke chapter 11, after casting out a demon, he said, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew chapter 4, which right before Matthew chapter 5, we read twice that Jesus was going around and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, there is a twofold meaning to the kingdom of heaven. There is the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of grace is that which Christ is currently building, setting up in the hearts of his elect people who make up his church. And the kingdom of glory is that, that future state where we will be with Christ for eternity. So, what does it mean then to, to make, why, why does it make you blessed? then, I should say, to be a part of this kingdom. Well, firstly, it is a blessing because those who are citizens of this kingdom are so only by grace. And it is the very same grace which brings about the forgiveness of sins and salvation. If you're poor in spirit, you recognize your own sinfulness, how you desperately need the grace of God, Jesus says that you will have it. You will have your forgiveness of sins. The Lord will not impute your sins to you, for you will be made a, a member 
citizen of the kingdom of grace. I've said it before and I will say it again. The greatest need of every human being is to have your sins forgiven by God. No greater problem than sin. There's financial woes. There are emotional woes. There's relationship type things. There's sicknesses. There's hardships. There's all all sorts of things. But I tell you, no thing is as dire a calamity as sin. Jesus here promises that if you recognize this, and you look at yourself in relationship with God, if you're poor in spirit, then you will have that sin dealt with. Cry out to Him in faith. Be completely done with yourself, through with yourself, and cast yourself wholly upon the goodness and graciousness of God. Shall be forgiven, and to you will be the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, worldly kingdoms and riches will all pass away But this kingdom is eternal. The Babylonian Empire was once the supreme power of the ancient world until Alexander the Great came and conquered her capital city and she was abandoned. The Roman Empire was at one point, likewise, the most powerful domineering force on all the earth until the Visigoths, those barbarians, came and sacked Rome. There was once a time when the British Empire was the empire upon which the sun never sets. Nowadays, most of our territories have broken away and become independent nations. Now we're living in the American Empire, and I'll just let you finish that thought yourself. You see, we humans, we, we, we build up these kingdoms, and, and they just come and go. They, they just come and go like all the riches, like all the pleasures and treasures you experience in this life. They are fleeting, but the kingdom of heaven is an eternal kingdom. You know, there are so many people today who are, are struggling, looking for some transcendent, otherly meaning in life, something bigger than themselves, something eternal. I tell you, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Thirdly, If the kingdom of God is eternal, then death has lost all of its thing. Then death has lost all of its power. It is a rather interesting thing that we humans live all our lives long with the knowledge of death. The book of Hebrews says that the fear of death has enslaved mankind. And it's, you know, all of you know, in this room know, one day... Going to die. Going to die. And yet, have you done anything about that? Have you prepared for that? You may eat right, sleep right, exercise, all those other things. Perhaps you can add a couple more years. You'll never escape the reality of death. You know, you all know that Benjamin Franklin quote, quote, there are two things in life which are certain, death and taxes. That being said, what have you done about it? Have you prepared your soul? Have you sought peace and reconciliation with God? Have you thought about what it means to be the blessed man to whom the Lord will not impute your sin? I tell you, to be a citizen of that great celestial kingdom of glory removes all fear and and the pain and sorrow that comes with death. death. Death is merely the passageway by which the saint is joined with their Savior. Psalm 116, verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Saints, obviously, referring to His people, His covenant people whom He has chosen for redemption. That's that's a wonderful thing. Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus Christ, when dead and buried, rose again proving that one day all of His elect shall rise again unto an everlasting and eternal glory. I've told this story many times. I said it, told it this morning. I was going to tell it again. Uh, my my great-grandfather uh, was a minister at the Clifton Tabernacle in Clifton, West Virginia. He was, at one point, I think he was in his mid-50s, somewhere around there, and him and his wife at this doctor's appointment. My great grandfather had diabetes. He had a 
really bad. And the doctors told him he's a lester. You don't do something about your diabetes. You don't make a change. You don't do something. You're going to die. Looks over his wife, says, I can't wait to meet Jesus. Squeezed her hand and that was it. And he left this world. That, that is the attitude that someone who's matured and, and advanced in grace has when it comes to death. We, we long to be in the presence of our Savior. We long to be free from the presence of sin. We, that, that's our hope. Paul says we do not labor as those who have no hope. We got hope. Realize that? We got hope. We have something that the world does not have. The Bible says the whole of humanity enslaved to the fear of death. But that, that's something that we are free from in Christ Jesus. You know, it's like the, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that death spread to all men because all men sinned. You know, death, dying, disease, growing old and, and withering away. What is that? But that's, that's the very effects of the fall. It's the very effects of sin. There would not be death in this world had our uh, federal head, Adam, not transgressed the law that God had given to him. And our second head, the second federal head, head we have, who is Christ Jesus, he solves that. He restores that. He fixes that. Death, he, he takes care of it. He takes care of it in his way. That's a wonderful thing. Fourthly, I would say the kingdom of heaven is not of this world. Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now, we don't recognize the beauty of this. Because we're just, just so carnal by nature. We are just enamored with the things of this world. We, we love the things of this world. And so we don't see the true beauty of Jesus' words here. It was Robert Murray McShane who has something to the effect of, what has the world done for you that you love it so much? You see, we were just talking about this, but all that this world has having been fallen in Adam, all that this world produces, death, it's destruction, it's sadness, it's despair, it's disease, it's sin. The, think about, I don't know, think about Genghis Khan. Think about, you know, a person in history who at, in their day was at the very just top, had had everything that carnal men desire. God had all the money, he had all the power, he had army, he had, he had harem of women, he had, had it all. Well, that's the very best that the world can give you. And die just like everyone else. Die just like everyone else. That, that's all that the world has to offer. Even, even the person who has the very best that this world has to offer is in a far worse state than the lowliest child of God, than the person with the least amount of grace. The things of this world are, are corrupt, but God is the Father of lights, and He's the giver of every good gift. Therefore, rejoice that the kingdom of heaven, which you are made a part of, made a citizen of by grace, is not of this world. My concluding thought to tonight's sermon will be this. Knowing what we know about our poverty, poverty of spirit and knowing what we know about the kingdom of heaven, make every use you can to be numbered amongst God's blessed people. For truly it is by grace through faith that we are saved and this is the gift of God. The Bible promises that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you found yourself to be poor in spirit, you need a Savior. Well, rejoice, for, for you will have one in Christ. Whoever comes to Him will find Him to be a total and complete Savior, having paid for all the sins of His elect in total 
Jesus said, it's the will of my Father that I lose none of what's been given me. He's a perfect Savior, a powerful Savior, a complete Savior. He says He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw nigh unto God through Him, since He ever lives to make intercession for them. You come to Him, you'll be made a member of the citizen, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So, so I would exhort you to be among the blessed people be among those to whom the Lord will not impute your sin. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, it is with humility that we come before your throne. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Uh, we pray that you would lead your people in an understanding of your word, an understanding of your truth. Dear God, we, we pray that this truth would find a resting place in our hearts, that it would be demonstrated as we live out our lives through the week. I just pray that you would keep, keep us safe until we can gather again. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.